Mark chapter 2. Let's pray and uh, then we can study. Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for your chance to study it. And Lord, I pray that as we come to this passage tonight, Lord, that you would enable me to teach your word and that your spirit would speak through me and through the teaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, hinder me from speaking anything that is wrong or overstating my case or under, understating my case, Lord. And I just pray that, that the truth of your word would go out and that it would minister to our hearts and that it would impact our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Mark chapter 2, and we are now, as I've been saying in recent weeks, going through the section of conflict and controversy. And it kind of started at the end of chapter 1, and it started properly at the beginning of chapter 2, and now we're progressing on through it. And the last few weeks we've had clashes with the... uh, with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. A couple of weeks ago, Jesus was feasting with sinners and tax collectors, and they didn't like that. And then last week, we were talking about fasting and how the uh, disciples of Jesus didn't do what it was that the Pharisees did. They didn't practice, they didn't live their lives in the Pharisaical way. And it is worth repeating where we ended last time because it's very crucial in moving forwards and that is that Jesus was saying to them that no one puts uh, an old, uh, a new patch onto an old uh, bit of clothing and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. And the reason for both is that if you had, for example, an old wineskin that had, when, you, when you've put wine into that previously, the wine skin has, has uh, sh- shrunk, shrunk, stretched, stretched. And then when you put new wine in again, it will stretch again and then it will break and it will burst and it will leak. And with cloth, it's, it's the other way around. You have the cloth that shrinks when you wash it and then you rip the garment, you put a new bit on and then it shrinks again and it will rip again. And, and the point that Jesus was making, and this is the crucial thing, the point that Jesus was making is you can't add something new to something old that doesn't hold it or fit it, that will contradict one another. And he's applying this to the religious system of the Pharisees and saying, we have new wine now. We have the Messiah. We have salvation. And this wine does not go into the wineskins. Something I didn't mention last time that has intrigued me since is that Perhaps the idea is is that the wine went into the wineskins previously and now it's changed. That Pharisaism had somehow was different than it was originally. Originally they had the law of Moses. It was only when they added laws and added laws and added laws that it changed. And thus as the wine changed, the wineskin changed with it. And now they're in a situation where to receive Christ, you can't take Christ... You can't take the teachings of Christ. You can't take Christ's teaching on the Mosaic law and put it into Pharisaism because it rips up. It destroys Pharisaism. Pharisaism won't hold Jesus Christ. He doesn't fit their religious system. And as always, as we mentioned again this morning, and as we'll mention again in Colossians chapter 2, and as we'll mention again next week, and as we'll mention again later this week, The point is just consistently so, that religion, our religious traditions, sometimes are so different from Scripture that you take genuine Bible teaching and it doesn't fit into our religious structures. The problem is not the teaching, the problem is the traditions. And this is going to be illustrated again as we go on to this final passage in chapter 2. We're looking now at the first of two Sabbath controversies. So we'll talk a little bit about the Sabbath as we kick into it. But I want us to note here what is happening in this passage. What we're going to see in this passage 
is we're going to see that rather than dealing with a Pharisaic practice, not hanging out with sinners, fasting on certain days of the week, Pharisaic practices that were different from the law of Moses, not required by the law of Moses, now we're taking a different turn. They're upping the ante, it's getting more focused, and it becomes more important. There's like a a crescendo building here through these passages, and we'll hit the finale, we'll hit the peak of the crescendo when we get to uh, chapter 3. But it's kind of building up here. And what's being addressed today is not a practice that has got nothing to do with the law of Moses, it's an additional practice. What we're looking at now is the law of Moses. We're going to look at what Moses did teach. Moses didn't say you had to fast two days a week. The Pharisees said that. But Moses did say that you must keep the Sabbath holy. So that's what we're going to look at. And that's why it's, the ante is upped. This is why it's escalated a bit. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's have a look. Verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? He and those, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the, law, uh, ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, this is, I was going to say the hardest passage in Mark. But I've already said that in chapter 1. So let's just say it's one of the hardest passages in Mark. Certainly the hardest, the hardest verse. I think with chapter 1 and the Jesus being moved by compassion or moved by anger, that's very difficult. But I came to a conclusion, I'm happy with it. There's some stuff in here that I really just don't have an answer to. And we'll deal with that in a moment. But it's not an easy passage for multiple reasons. But let's make our way through it. So they're going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So let's just get this picture in our heads. I think it's always helpful to kind of picture it. They're walking through a field of grain. It's easy for me to do this. I come from England in the county of Kent, where there is wheat field after wheat field after wheat field, these huge wheat fields. And in England, we have a public footpath system. It's not like the trails you have here that go off into the mountains, but there's a whole network of footpaths that were used as Uh, as routes of transportation in the days before cars. And the law has protected those routes um, ever since. And so just ridiculous number of footpaths. If you buy a piece of land in England that has a footpath, you're legally obliged to make sure that footpath is maintained so that any stranger can walk through your land, even though it's your land. And so, you know, I've I spent many, many, many hours in England walking and running through wheat fields and along the side of wheat fields, plucking bits of wheat when in the season of harvest. So this is something that's very familiar to me in my mind, maybe not so much to you. But if you can picture, they're walking along the side of a field. It's probably April or May because it seems as if the crop, the wheat crop is in harvest. So they have the, the head of the wheat plant with the grains upon it. And Uh, What the disciples are doing is they're taking the head off the stalk and they're presumably rubbing it together to get the grains of wheat away from the stalk and then there's, there's, there's like a husk on it and they'll be blowing it off, clearing it away and taking that grain and eating it. And that's what they're doing. And, you know, if you're eating... If you're eating grains of wheat by themselves, you've got to be pretty hungry. (laughs) So I I imagine that there is a situation here of one of great need. Um, But they are certainly eating from the wheat field as they pass through it. Okay, so that's our scenario. The key thing to note here is that it is on the Sabbath. It's on the Sabbath. Now, let's talk about the Sabbath. 
it's, it's awkward because I don't want to make this a sermon about the Sabbath. But we've got two weeks coming up, this week and next week, which are dealing with Sabbath controversies. And unless we understand the Sabbath, we're, gonna, we're gonna end up with controversies of our own. So we need to look at it and then we need to deal with the basic principles. The Sabbath was from Friday sundown until Saturday sundown. We think of it historically being as uh, Saturday, but technically it was Friday uh, when the sun went down until Saturday when the sun went down. And it uh, comes from the creation account, it was evening and there was morning one day. That's how they measured the day with the evening first. So the Sabbath is Sunday, uh, Friday evening till uh, Friday sundown until Saturday sundown. That was your Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day was a time of rest. It was a day that God gave uh, for the Jewish people to have a day of rest. And there's just a couple of things that I want to say about the Sabbath before we get into it. We'll be talking about it a fair bit because we're going to hit Colossians chapter 2 fairly soon and we'll be talking about the Sabbath in Coloss Colossians as well. So you guys who come in the evenings will get a repeat when you come to Colossians chapter 2 because most people won't have had this and will have to repeat most of this then. But the Sabbath was given to Israel in Exodus chapter 20 as part of the Ten Commandments in the giving of Mosaic law. The Ten Commandments stood as the uh, centerpiece, if you like, of the Mosaic law, which in total were 613 commandments. So there was the Ten Commandments as we know them, another 603 on top. And one of those commandments was to keep the Sabbath holy. And then there are specific details that are given regarding the keeping of the Sabbath holy, and we'll mention a few of those in a moment. I'm not sure we'll have time to go through them all, but we'll, we'll, look at, uh, we'll certainly reference a couple of them. And it's very clear that the Sabbath was a day to be preserved, to be kept holy as a day of rest, and there was no work to be done on that day. If you were a butcher and you went butchering on the Sabbath, you were a Sabbath violator. If you were a uh, banker and did some banking, you were a Sabbath violator. If you were a tax collector and you did tax collecting, you were a Sabbath violator. And it was a serious offense. It was punishable by death. And if you uh, had household work to do, uh, the example is given in scripture of someone going out to collect wood to burn, um, and they would go out and collect wood. And it's not as simple as popping down to the store and handing over a bit of money and collect, getting some wood, you know. It involves going to the woods, chopping, doing some manual labor to get that wood and then preparing that wood and bringing it home so that you could keep your family warm. There was labor, there was work involved. And you weren't allowed to do that. You had to do that labor prior to the Sabbath and have it done in advance so that on the Sabbath there was no work left to do. Everything that was needed to be done was already done. Now, just a couple of misconceptions. We know that the Sabbath mirrors, parallels God resting on the seventh day in the, in the uh, account of creation. God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. And that is the template, if you like, for the Sabbath. But we must note this. There is no observance of the Sabbath anywhere in Scripture between Genesis chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 20. In other words, when Exodus 20 comes along, it's a case of, hey, you remember how God rested on the seventh day? You're going to do that too. But before then, there was no command to do so. God did rest on the seventh day, but there was no command to, to mimic that, to copy that, to do that. That never happened until Exodus chapter 20 and the giving of the law. The law was given, the Mosaic law was given through Moses to a specific group of people, the Jews. It was given to Israel. And it was the Jews who had to observe that law. And that law, all 613 commandments, distinguished the Jews from those around them. When the Gentiles wanted to come and worship the God of Israel, they had to proselytize, convert to Judaism, and they had to take the law upon themselves and obey it as if they were a Jew. But as we saw in our studies in Ephesians, the blood of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, broke down the wall that separated Jew and Gentile, that Mosaic law. It ended the law. The temple curtain was torn in two. That division was gone so that those who used to be far off 
Gentiles who were separate from God, kept apart by these laws and rules and regulations, had to come through that and over that wall to come in. That's now gone. And they can just come to Christ by faith just like anybody. Uh, and, just, and the same for the Jews too. Anyone can come now without taking the law upon. Because the law was given under the covenant to Moses and the covenant to Moses ended with the death of Christ. The covenant of Moses had within that covenant all the rules and regulations for sacrifices and those sacrifices found their fulfillment in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And some will quote a passage in Matthew where Jesus says that not one jot nor tittle, which is little parts of a letter in Hebrew, will pass from this law until it's fulfilled. And it will not pass away. And it hasn't passed away. It's been fulfilled. The law wasn't thrown out as a failure. It had the purpose, and the purpose was fulfilled. That's what Paul argues in Galatians 3 and 4. That's what, Paul, uh, that's what the author to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 7 and 8. And so the law came to an end. Bizarrely, and I still don't really understand it, we have a very, very, very strong, deeply entrenched tradition within the Christian church to observe a Sabbath, as we call it, but it's on a Sunday. And we are allowed to work. We're allowed to travel, we're allowed to drive, we're allowed to shop, we're allowed to do different things, but we still call it the Sabbath, or some people refer to it as the Lord's Day. Now, just to be clear, there wasn't a Sabbath before the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law gave the observation of a Sabbath, and the Mosaic Law came to an end 2,000 years ago, and there has been no need to observe the Sabbath since. You are free to observe the Sabbath, but you're not obliged to observe the Sabbath. If you do keep the Sabbath, just for reference, it's from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. It's not on Sunday. There's nothing in the scripture to suggest it's ever changed. In fact, the expression, the Lord's Day, is only found in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, when it doesn't actually say the day of the Lord. It says a, a lordy day. It's an adjective. It, it was just a lordy day because John had his vision on that day. It was a day that is associated with the Lord. It was an amazing day, if you like. Um, to say he had his vision on a Sunday, and that's the Lord's Day, is a circular argument. Because you haven't proven that it's the Lord's Day already, and you're, just, you're arguing in circles, you're chasing your tail. So it's, it's just a tradition, it's just a, a tradition. And we don't, Paul specifically says in Colossians 2 that we're not ob obliged to observe the Sabbath. So the irony for me is, is that here we are teaching about people insisting on observation, on observing laws in a way that God has never said to do. And churches will teach this very passage and somehow come through this passage and teach about Sabbath and come to a conclusion teaching people to observe a law that was never given to them, a law that the people to whom it was given has now been fulfilled and has gone, and a law that is not being observed correctly and isn't even being observed on the right day. In other words, they're doing exactly what the Pharisees are doing in this story, which is just irony of the highest level. One last word on, on the modern observation of Sabbath before I pass on. In the law, the sacrificial system was there and it had to be kept. If you did not partake in the Passover, the slaughter of the Passover lamb, you were sinning. The sacrificial system was important. It had to be kept. Blood had to be shed. Why would God do such a thing? Why would God insist on the sacrifices of these animals to atone for the sin of the people? Only for it to be repeated each year, each sacrifice, each time because it was pointing to the need of sacrifice for sin, and it was fulfilled in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If somebody came to church today, and they pulled, pulled, came in with a little lamb, you know, put a little collar and a leash on the lamb and brought it in, set it up maybe somewhere over there, and brought out a knife and started killing it, well, first of all, we'd be horrified. Who's going to clean the blood up? 
probably you, Carlo, actually. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's going to make a mess. Secondly, like, you're killing animals in church. That's not good. But on a theological level, hopefully that would be our biggest problem in why do you feel the need to make a sacrifice because the sacrifices have been fulfilled in Christ. Guys, the Sabbath, in the same way, was a picture. It was a picture of after work, there comes rest. Christ is our Sabbath. He has freed us from the burden of sin. He has assured us of our future glorification. Paul says in Romans, those he's justified, he's also glorified. And so I believe that the keeping of a Sabbath is something that, even if it's adjusted for modern day, the, 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 the insistence on observing Sabbath is taking away from part of how Jesus fulfilled the law. Does that mean that we should all work seven days? Oh no, don't go and do that. Take time off, please. Rest, recover. That's a great principle. What a wonderful principle. I'm just simply saying that the day that you take off, whether you take a day off or two days off every two weeks or half day here and a half, it doesn't matter. There's no biblical obligation. You're not under Mosaic law and you're not obliged to keep a Sabbath. So I just have to get all out of the way with regards to Sabbath. Now, with regards to what they had to do, there is a requirement in Exodus 34, 21, I won't, I won't turn to all of these passages because we've got others to go to. There was a requirement saying that you couldn't harvest on the Sabbath. Now, as I said already, if you were a butcher, no butchering on the Sabbath. You don't do your job. You don't earn money on the Sabbath. You rest on the Sabbath. You're trusting God that if you don't work every day, he'll still look after you, right? So if you're a farmer... You don't go harvesting on the Sabbath. Now that was a big deal. I come from a farming family. My grandfather owned a farm. My cousin now owns the same farm. And I, as a young child, used to go and play around in the hay and stuff. I used to go and watch my grandfather doing different things on the farm. And I, we only lived about you know, 10 miles or so away from his farm. And so I got to see all this stuff going on. And year after year, you see the crops grow and the harvest come up. And when the harvest was ready... They'd be checking every day, checking the, the fields, checking the weather forecast. You don't want to be harvesting on a rainy day, and you get plenty of those in England in the summertime, I can promise you. So they're checking the forecast, checking this, and when it was the right time to harvest, boom, you go. You just go and you do it, there and then. There's no, there's no wasting time, there's, you just got to get it done. So for a farmer to say, hey, on this day, it doesn't matter what the weather's going to do. Doesn't, doesn't matter about you know, who's a, you know, any other circumstances, how ready the crop is. You don't harvest on that day. That's a big deal. That's trusting God. But this is how the Pharisees understood this. Jesus and his disciples are walking by a field and they pluck off the side of the field, they pluck a uh, head of wheat. Okay? Now, just as an aside here, it's worth knowing that um, according to Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25, the edges of the field were reserved for foreigners, or as we might call them, refugees. Um, I'm not going to get into the current political discussion of this day, other than to say it's a very complex issue, and many of you will disagree with each other, and that's okay. But in biblical times, at that time, in that era, under that law, for those people, under their theocratic government, foreigners were to be welcomed, and when they were there amongst them, if they weren't able to work because they were discriminated against, there was food available for them because the edge of the field was reserved for them. And so there was no problem for the foreigner and for the poor person to be able to take wheat from the edge of the field. You had to lay that aside, as it were. That was part of what was required of you. So nobody's stealing. So that's the first thing. No one's stealing. They pluck the head of wheat from the stalk. The Pharisees would say, that's harvesting. Because that's what harvesting is. Harvesting is taking the head of the wheat. 
And then what they're doing is they, they are, they're reaping the crop, then they are uh, threshing the crop, they're rubbing to get the grains out, and getting rid of the husk, they're now winnowing. Now, obviously for the farmer, they're doing this on a large scale to make a living. These are poor people who are hungry, taking food reserved for poor people, and they're plucking and they're eating as they're going. They're not working, they're not earning a job, they're, you know, they're not making a living, they're not doing their work because they haven't trusted God. They're poor people who are travelling and are hungry and are simply plucking and eating. But the Pharisees interpreted that law so strictly that they were guilty of harvesting, uh, reaping, more literally, threshing and winnowing. I have met many people like that in churches. <laughs> Let's just say that. Where everything is looked at through a little microscope. Just through a tiny microscope. Well, technically speaking, and we've got to be careful. Because sometimes people will talk about the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law as a way of avoiding doing what the law says to do. And though we're not under Mosaic law, we are under other law. We're under the law of Christ. And there are things we're commanded to do and there are things we're commanded not to do. And people try and wriggle out of them all the time. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who are doing something that is, that is allowed, but somebody else's incredibly strict interpretation of the law is making them a lawbreaker. So how does Jesus deal with this? And, and just before we move on, let's understand something very clearly here. In the past, in the previous weeks we've dealt with the controversies, Jesus has done things that the Pharisees wouldn't do two weeks ago with the feasting, with the sinners and tax collectors, and things that they, and, and they weren't doing things that the Pharisees commanded people to do, fasting on the two days a week. Okay? And so Jesus is breaking pharisaical law. He's not doing what they did. He's not living like they lived. But this is Mosaic law. If Jesus didn't keep Mosaic law, then he was unrighteous. That's very important. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And he was a Jewish man, and as a Jewish man, he is under every one of the 613 commandments. Every one of them. As I'm very fond of saying, if Jesus had eaten a bacon sandwich, then his death on the cross would have accomplished nothing. Because pork was forbidden under Mosaic law, he would have been a lawbreaker, he would have been a sinner, and his sacrifice would not have been a sinless sacrifice, and it wouldn't have accomplished what it did accomplish. How bizarre is that? He had to keep the law. So the Pharisees are saying to him, your disciples are breaking the law. That's a serious accusation. It's a very serious accusation. So we, this is the escalating. We're dealing specifically with Mosaic law. So let's have a look. It's interesting, verse 24. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the issue now is what is lawful? And the Pharisees, like so many before and since, are applying a bit of false logic here. They are doing what is called begging the question. Now, we use the phrase to beg the question wrongly all the time. If, if I say something to you, if I answer a question with something and that raises a further question, we say, oh, that's begging the question. That's not what it means. Begging the question is a logical fallacy where you presume your conclusion in your response. So what's happening here is they're saying, you, here's our argument, you're doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The argument really is, is it lawful? But they've presumed their argument, the conclusion of their argument, in the question. You're, they're doing what's not lawful. But are they? That's the question. So, this is Jesus' response. And he said to them, have you never read what David did? And by the way, 
The answer is obvious. Yes, you have read it. They're the experts in the law. Not only had they read it, they memorized it. It was part of their training. They knew it. So what he's saying to them essentially is, you're supposed to know this stuff. There's a, there's a dig at them here. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? There's an implication that Jesus and his disciples were in need and hungry at this point. He and those who were with him. So there's a parallel situation. David's with his disciples, his men, his mighty men, and Jesus is now uh, with his disciples. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now this is where it gets awfully difficult and awkward. And to understand this and to look at this, we're going to need to turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we'll look at the story that Jesus is referencing. In 1 Samuel 21, it says this, Then David came to Nob, to Amalek the, high pri the priest, and uh, Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know uh, anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men kept themselves, uh, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Okay, so there is the story. David's on a journey, he's traveling, they are in desperate need for food. He goes to the priest, he says, hey priest, we need some food, what do you have that we can eat? The priest says, we don't have any food, all we've got is this special holy bread. And uh, the priest checks, makes sure that the men in their travels haven't been uh, basically, uh, how do we put it politely, um, what, what happens on the road stays on the road kind of behavior. And uh, David is saying, essentially, you know, that wouldn't happen anyway. These are godly men. Um, but today, specifically, that's not going to happen. Partly because of the special journey that they're on and the importance of it. But there is a tradition, though it's not directly said, that is associated with this passage, that the day was holy because it was a Sabbath day. And the the uh, Pharisees would have understood the passage that way, and that's why Jesus applies this to a Sabbath day event. And so they have this bread, the, the, the bread of presence, and uh, let's just turn there as well, shall we? And let's have a look at what the scriptures say about the bread of presence. Um, so I'm, I'm keeping a finger in Mark and a finger in 1 Samuel, and I'm going to now turn to Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24. Now, the bread for the tabernacle is in Leviticus 24 and verse 5. You shall take fine flour, bake 12 loaves from it, two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. You shall set them on two piles, six in a pile on the uh, table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly, it is for the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual Jew. Okay? Now, I've read to you the passage in Leviticus for, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I love intertextuality. Jesus is referencing Samuel, and Samuel is referencing Leviticus, and it's all part of the background. But I want you to note here, this bread was baked specifically. It was baked specifically for the priests, the sons of Aaron, um, and it was baked specifically for the Sabbath. 
But there isn't anywhere that says, and if anyone else eats it, it's a sin. There isn't anywhere that says if somebody else eats this, they should be punished. It's saying you're to do this and this is what it's for. All right? So what happens here is this. In the first Samuel passage, they have this bread, and there's, there's 12 loaves prepared, as we saw in Leviticus. Did you see the 12? Yeah? 12, a significant number, 12 tribes of Israel. And the tribes of Israel, obviously, are preparing and contributing for the, for the uh, Levitical um, tribe of Levi, who are, are the priests, the sons of Aaron. And it's all in preparation for that. Because what's going to happen is that the other tribes will be giving a tithe to basically support the priesthood so the priesthood can do their priestly jobs. They're doing their priestly work. The priestly work doesn't earn money like butchering and selling your meat, like being a farmer and selling your harvest. It doesn't work that way. So they're provided for, okay? So those, those uh, 12 portions are there in two separate piles, okay? Now, assuming that the event did happen on a Sabbath, what is interesting is this. You have the bread prepared. On the Sabbath day, the priests eat that bread, eat from that bread. That's, that's for them, their holy Sabbath bread. What happens in the first Samuel passage is that there are five loaves. In other words, there's been the bread prepared. The bread has obviously been eaten from, but there's five of them left over. Do you follow? So the, the bread was made in a certain number for a symbolic reason. But it wasn't all required for eating. There's no way that says, eat it all up. <laughs> you know? Sometimes people get the wrong idea. A funny little story. When I was at school, there was, a, there was an assistant chaplain. We went to a kind of, a kind of nominally Christian school with tra traditional services and stuff like that. And we would have communion as part of our Sunday service. I was a, at a boarding school, so I would be at school on a Sunday, living at the school, and, and, and there would be a, a church service that we were, had to attend. And there would often be communion at the church service. And they would hand out these little wafers, and you go forward and take the wafer, and then there would be these silver cups where you would drink wine from. And you, you wouldn't get little separate ones. Back in those days, there was one silver cup. You drank from the same cup, and there was a cloth, and the, the chaplain would wipe away from the edge as if somehow that would protect you from germs. I'm sure it didn't work. But then the next person would drink from the same cup, and so on and so forth. And um, the assistant chaplain, when it all was said and done, turned out to be a bit of a shady guy in lots of different ways. But one thing that was always interesting to us was he was a, he was a gentleman of very rosy cheeks. And it was generally presumed amongst the students that he enjoyed a tipple or two. And what was amusing to us is on Sunday, when the uh, when both chaplains would do this, the, you know, this was an this was a uh, Anglican type of ceremony. It wasn't Catholic, okay? So there's no there's no like this is the bloody the blood of Christ, you know? And yet, when the communion service was finished, whatever wine was left over, they drank it all up on the stage in front of us, as if somehow the, the, the service couldn't be completed until all the wine was finished. <laughs> it just seemed, a, it seemed such a nonsensical thing to me. And clearly, the priest here in, uh, in 1 Samuel felt the same way. No need to eat all the bread. Let the bread do what it's done. And so they're there on the Sabbath. They have the bread. And then these people come. Notice at the beginning of that passage that the priest sees David and is trembling. There is, there's honor to this great man. And he is to be, he's the king, he's to be, he, he's God's chosen one, he's to be acknowledged, he has his, you know, he's come alone, but his men are with him, and he needs bread, because they're struggling, and they're starving. And so here's this bread, go take it. Now listen, Jesus is going to address this later on, this, this same issue is going to come up, and we'll deal with it again then. But God asks us to do certain things for certain people, to, to, to do certain events and what have you. But if we use our religious practice as a way, you know, can you imagine in that situation? These guys are there, they're doing a job that God's called them to do, and he's like, I'm sorry, we've got some bread here, but you can't have it, it's our bread. You could argue <coughs> that that's what the bread was for. Maybe they hadn't finished eating it yet. But this was David, and he was starving, and his men were starving. And God had called them to a task. And what the priest did 
is he didn't violate the law. He didn't break the law. <coughs> the law said that he had to prepare that bread for the priests. And that was done. It was done. The, the preparation was done. But now there's someone starving who needs bread. So you give the bread to the person starving. Now, this to me is crucial. If you in that situation would say the bread's for the priest, it's not for anybody else, go away and starve, you're a religious person. If you said, well, I made the bread, I did what was required, strictly speaking, I'm not breaking anything, I've just got to do what I can to make sure these people get the bread. So let's do a, it's holy bread, it's consecrated to the Lord, I can't give it to people who are fornicating or whatever else. You, you, you guys are walking with the Lord, right? You're, you're living, absolutely. In that case, you're holy men, you can have holy bread, go for it. That's a Christian thing to do. That's really important. So what Jesus is doing in referencing this whole story, we're not finished quite in 1 Samuel, we'll be back there in a minute, so don't lose it. But what Jesus is doing in referencing this whole story is he's pointing to an incident in the history of Israel where the law was kept, but it was kept to the minimum requirement because there were people in need. And people in need trumps doing everything, you know, in, in the minutest of detail. Now, again, nobody is violating the law. We read the Leviticus passage. The Leviticus passage was preparing the bread and preparing it for people. It never said that you're punished if somebody else eats from it. It's prepared for that. And the person for whom it was prepared, whose bread it is, says, I'm giving you what is mine. Because you're in need. And your need is greater than my need. It's close to the edges, but it's a godly heart, and it isn't a violation of the law. So what Jesus is saying is, essentially, look, you could look at plucking and, 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 and rubbing the grain and blowing away the chaff and just and, and nibbling on grain. You could look at that at harvesting, but you don't need to. The law saying don't harvest on the Sabbath is clearly speaking about not doing something that these people aren't doing. It's speaking about making a living, making an income. You're missing the main point of the law. You're missing why the law was given. These are poor and needy people need to be helped. And the law again and again and again is making provision for the foreigner, for the poor, for the needy. How can this be wrong? So what Jesus is doing here is he's not saying they're not keeping the law and it doesn't matter. He's saying you've got to look at why the law was given. You've got to understand the law. He's not disagreeing on the importance of keeping the law. He's disagreeing with their interpretation of the law. Now, we're coming back to that in a minute. There's one little thing I've got to deal with here, which is very, very awkward. Okay? The astute amongst you may have noticed already. Jesus says <coughs> in verse 26, in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, in 1 Samuel 21... David says to Am, Am, Ahimelech, the, high, the priest. Two different names. Abiathar does turn up. He turns up a chapter later. Abiathar is the son of Ahimelech, which gives us a problem. Jesus says at the time when this guy was the high priest, and when you turn to the passage in the Old Testament, his dad was the priest. That is a legitimate problem. And I'm not going to brush it aside. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some options and then I'm going to give you an honest assessment and then I'm going to give you a principle, okay? Here's some options. One option is, is that there are some Greek manuscripts in which it doesn't say Abiathar, it says Ahimelech. But the reason that your Bible and my Bible and every other translation says Abiathar is because that was almost certainly what was originally written. But people saw that there was a problem and wanted to correct it so that Jesus wasn't lying. And so you get a few manuscripts that have been changed to try and harmonize between the Old and New Testament. So almost certainly it wasn't, it was Abiathar originally. So I don't think that's a good way out, but that's one possibility. Another possibility is it's a kind of literary reference. It's referring to, the, to that 
that era. Abiathar was a far more important priest and his, his role was more significant. He was more well known. And so it's pointing them to that portion of scripture. It's kind of a literary reference. You know, if we're talking about Lord of the Rings, we might refer to what the goings on of Middle Earth. And those people who are Lord of the Rings aficionados will know that Middle Earth refers to that land. It's kind of like a literary reference. That's, a, that's another possibility. Another possibility is it's idiomatic. Um, that there's some kind of idiom that we simply don't understand. That Abiathar being better known or, or, or what have you, that, um, that it refers to the, the family of Abiathar, which is normally done after the father, but the son's better known, so it's the time of Abiathar. You know, it became an idiomatic expression. You know, um, how, do, how would we give it a parallel today? It's not really an easy way of doing it, but um, we, we might talk about music being Beatlesque because it sounds like the Beatles, even if it wasn't the Beatles. It could be, you know, this is kind of of Abiathar, of that time. And, and there are various different clever solutions to try and work them out, work out why this would be wrong. And here's my summary, my conclusion. I'm not happy with any of those. I don't think we have enough evidence in any of those solutions for it to clearly explain the inconsistency. Okay? So finally, here's your principle. Does that mean that Jesus got it wrong? No. No, it doesn't. Listen, if I had a friend, and my friend I'd known for 20 years, and somebody came to me early on in the friendship and said, your friend was talking about you, he thinks you're great. And then, and then maybe another few months later, somebody else comes to me and said, oh, you know so-and-so, yeah, he, he mentioned you, he thinks you're great. And for 20 years, routinely, month after month, people come up to me and say, oh, this friend of yours was talking about you, he thinks you're great, right? And that always happened. And, and, and my friendship with this guy has never wavered, there's never been any incident, we're still the best of friends, and somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I, I, I know so-and-so, he thinks you're lousy, he hates you, he thinks you're a two-faced hypocrite then you know what my first reaction is going to be? Don't believe it. I've had this guy give testimony of me, and he loves me, and he said it a hundred times. He said it a thousand times. He said it over two decades. And, and, and you're going to come and bring testimony that he thinks that, that, that all of that was a lie? Don't buy it. Don't believe it. I'll, I'll, I'll go find him. I'll talk to him. And I bet that when I talk to him, whatever misunderstanding has happened, he'll clear it up. That's how I feel about this passage. Jesus is truth. He is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The scriptures to me are the most clear illustration of the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. I look at the scriptures. You know what? You may have gathered this from my ministry, but I kind of like the Bible and I'm fascinated by it. I love seeing how this passage fits in with that passage and how everything ties together. And if you think for one second that somehow Jesus, you know, even if you don't believe that Jesus is God, even if you don't believe in, you know, in, the, in the Gospels as gospel truth, the idea that this rabbinical figure, if that's what you're going to make him, didn't know who the high priest was is, is nonsense. If you think that somehow Mark misreported it, that's just that's, that's nonsense, that's crazy. So why is it different? I've never read a good answer. Scholars after scholars after scholars haven't come up with a good answer. But you know what? It wasn't wrong. It wasn't a lie. It wasn't an error. There's something there. There's something there that we're separated from by 2,000 years. Maybe it was idiomatic and we're just not familiar with that idiom. Maybe it was an expression that was used that we're just not aware of. But I know Jesus. And I know that when I see him face to face, it probably won't be the first thing I want to say to him, but at some point over the course of eternity, I might raise Mark chapter 2, and verse 26, and Jesus will say, well, this is, what, this is why, this is the bit of information you didn't have. And I won't on that day say, oh Lord, I didn't trust you. I should have known you'd have come good. 
I'd say, I knew, didn't know what it was, Lord, but I knew it. And do you know what? I'm perfectly happy that my Bible has an inconsistency like that. And I do not want to be the kind of Christian that lies or buffers up solutions to make them stronger than they actually are. I'll take it face on. And I'll say, you know what? That does look like an inconsistency. And no, I don't have an obvious, clear answer. But when people come and they talk about errors of the Bible, 99 out of 100 of them are rubbish. And they can be explained. And they are, there are good solutions for every single one of them. This is the one I don't have a solution for. But do you know what? I passionately believe that when Mark wrote it, there was no need for correction because the people at the time understood why it wasn't the problem. That's been lost to us. And one day, we'll see our Lord and we'll have an answer again then. And that's, my friends, is why it's called faith. We trust in him in between the times of light, even in the darkness. So I don't have an easy answer. I, of all the problem passages of the Bible, in the entire Bible, this is the one that I find the hardest. I haven't come up with a solution that, I, that I'm happy with, but I trust my Lord. I trust my Lord. So with that as a little way of distraction, let's come to the final solution. Jesus says... Um, in verse 26, he says, Did you not hear about this? Uh, Abiathar the high priest ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. Now, we read Leviticus, and Leviticus did not say. We specifically looked at it for this specific reason. And Leviticus did not say that the priests might not do it. So why would Jesus say it was not lawful <coughs> when the law of Moses didn't say it was lawful? didn't say it was not lawful, rather. Why would he do that? When you see something being spoken of lawful or not lawful in the scripture, you've always got to ask, which law? Now we're going to come a little bit later to a passage uh, in Mark's gospel, which is also parallel in Matthew, that talks about divorce. And in the church, people will always reference this passage and they'll say, oh look, Jesus said you could divorce under these circumstances. And I always take people back to that passage and I'll, and I'll say, what does it say? Right at the beginning of the passage, it says, is it lawful? Why is it lawful? And I say to them, what law is it? And the answer is, they're debating over Mosaic law in that passage. So, I then say to the people, are you under Mosaic law? No, I'm not under Mosaic law. Well, then it's not, it's not relevant to you. You, you, can't, you can't draw a conclusion from your life when Jesus is talking with the Pharisees about Mosaic law, right? So which law is being spoken of in this passage? The Pharisees, remember, said to him, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, what law are they talking about? They're talking about their interpretation of Mosaic law. So though they're talking about Mosaic law, they're talking about what they, the Pharisees, consider to be lawful. So what Jesus is saying in response is, well, if we take your system, if we take your approach to the law, then the high priest did what wasn't lawful as well. Do you see the logic? The, the high priest didn't do what was not lawful under Mosaic law, but under the Pharisaic interpretation of Mosaic law, he did what they said couldn't be done. What Jesus is showing them is not that it's okay to break the law of Moses, what he's showing them is that their interpretation of Mo the breaking of the law of Moses is wrong. He's essentially, if you want to paraphrase it, saying, if you think that this is breaking the law of Moses, then this is breaking the law of Moses too. And the priest was okay with it, and David was okay with it, and God was okay with it. So the only person right now who has a problem with it is you. That's what he's saying. That's how I understand that passage. And that becomes clear in his summary here in verses 27 and 8. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath in the law was given to them as something for them. Right? So, by not working on the Sabbath, you're forced to trust God. By not working on the Sabbath, you get a rest so you don't overwork. The Sabbath is there for your benefit. The Pharisees had 2,300 different laws on how to observe the Sabbath. 
and it became a burden to the people. And the Sabbath had become something that they were to serve. But when the law was given, the Sabbath was there to serve them. That's why Jesus said, come to me. Do you remember this context, old and new wine? Jesus not fitting in the Pharisaic system. He says, come to me, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. The Pharisees will tell you that that's breaking the Sabbath. The Pharisees will tell you that's breaking the Sabbath. And the Sabbath will become a, has become a burden to you. But you come to me... And my yoke is easy and light. And once again, you'll still keep the law, you'll still keep the Sabbath, but now the Sabbath is serving you again. That's the point. And then he says at the very end, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is an understatement. What he's saying here is he is again, it's controversial. He's pointing to himself as the Son of Man, I won't, we're out of time, I'm not going to go back to that all over again, but we've done that previously, Daniel 7, maybe next time he says Son of Man again, we'll come back to it. But he points himself as Son of Man, Daniel 7, it's a term of deity, he's pointing to himself as having authority, and saying that he is Lord, Adonai, ruler of the Sabbath, even of the Sabbath. So he has authority over what so far? Over demons, authority to teach the Bible, authority over sickness. And he's even got authority over the Sabbath. What does that mean? Does that mean he can disregard the law? No, that's not what's going on here. What that means is, is he gets to decide what it means. He gets to interpret it. And why is this such an understatement? Because he's the one who wrote it. Those stones, remember, the law was given... 613 commandments, 10 of them on tablets of stone. And the tablets of stone had the law written in by the finger of God. Which person of a trinity do you think that was? He was the one who gave the law. He was the one who wrote the law. He's the one who understands the law. <laughs> there was a story I read just the other week which was just brilliant where somebody wrote a book and somebody is, oh, was it a book or a movie? But I, I think it was a book and a person was basically saying, you know, this, this story, that this, this either, I, know, been, I can't remember being written, it was a book or whether it was being made into a movie, but this story is representative of this, this and this. And he was arguing this on the internet. He was saying that this story is an analogy and it represents this. And the author comes along and says, no, I wrote the book and it didn't. And the person arguing would say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. And it's the same thing here. Jesus wrote the law. He knows what he meant. He's the son of man. He has authority to interpret the law. The Pharisees have added their laws. He doesn't care for that. The Pharisees have reinterpreted Moses. He doesn't care for that either. But he did keep the law, and he did keep it perfectly, and his, his death on the cross was a righteous death of a sinless man. I'm over time. We'll talk more about the Sabbath next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this passage. Lord, I pray that, you know, even when we get bits of the Bible that we struggle with, we don't understand, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust in your word, and help us to, to trust in your character. You and the, who are the one who reveals your word to us. And Lord, I just pray as we go through these passages of conflict with the Pharisees, that Lord, that you would uh, enable us to see these passages in honest eyes. Lord, if there's, if there's any part of our heart that is Pharisaical, if we are insisting on things that you've never insisted on, if we're interpreting what you have insisted on too strictly, if your laws and your rules are burdensome, rather than a blessing. Lord, may we get it right. So many in the world today think of the church as being overly strict, out of touch, bigoted. Lord, and sometimes that's a misunderstanding and just a hatred of you. But sometimes it's right. May it not be so of us. May we 
accurately represent you. Lord, I confess that when I read these passages, where the religious leaders, the experts in Scripture, totally miss what it is that you were saying because of their pride, because of their religion. As a teacher of your word, Lord, it fills me with fear. May that not be so of me, Lord. Help us to come to your word with open eyes, honest hearts, humble hearts, keen minds, studious discipline, and find what your word really says. Because in it, there is life. Amen.